Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. In the words of the great Canadian Prime Minister, John Diefenbaker, I am a Canadian, a free Canadian, free to speak without fear, free to worship God in my own way, free to stand for what I think right, free to oppose what I believe wrong, free to choose those who shall govern my country, this heritage of freedom I pledge to uphold for myself and all of mankind. Merci beaucoup. Thank you very much. That was a very jubilant Pierre Polyev speaking last night, hitting on what has been one of the major themes of his campaign, that of freedom. Pierre Polyev romping to victory in the conservative leadership race, uh, launching a new era in Canadian politics. But what does this era look like? Pierre Polyev has uh, achieved one step toward his path to hopefully, in his mind, becoming the next prime minister of this country. Is that where this story takes us? Obviously, that story is not yet written. Uh, and whoever is going to emerge out of the next election as the next prime minister, it is going to be one hell of a struggle. And in the end, last night, it wasn't even close. Pierre Polyev uh, on the first ballot, almost uh, 70 percent of the vote. Joining us to talk about how things unfolded last night, what it means for Pierre Polyev, what it means for the Conservative Party and what it means for politics in Canada. We begin today with David Aiken, chief political correspondent for Global News, who was covering the conservative event last night. David, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, great to be here. I mean, this was a resounding victory in every sense, David. But first of all, put it into perspective. Uh, you know, Pierre Polyev, the scope of this victory was just incredible. Yeah, and this is Pierre Polyev's Conservative Party. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. It wasn't even close to being close. Um, let me just run through the numbers so everybody gets a sense of how dominant this win was. Pierre Polyev won 70% of the popular vote. Stephen Harper back in 04, he won 68% of the popular vote. Now, as you know, popular vote doesn't count in a conservative leadership race because they do a point system. Each riding has 100 points. There's 338 ridings. And that's so that any leader has to show some strength in every region. Did Polyev do that? Oh, yeah. He won 68% of the available points. Stephen Harper, 2004, only won 54% of the available points. In 338 ridings, Polyev won every single one but eight of them. He won every riding west of downtown Toronto. I mean, it was dominant. Red Tories voted for him. The Libertarian Tories voted for him. Western Conservatives, uh, free market conservatives, social conservatives, every faction of the party voted for Polyev. And remember, we have unbelievable record turnout. 420,000 people voted in this thing. It's just dominant from start to finish. And because he won on the first ballot, which means he didn't need the help of the supporters of any of the candidates. Right. Jean Charest finished second well back. So he doesn't owe anybody anything. This is Pierre Polyev's party. That said, as one conservative told me last night, I was at the convention, said, we have doubled down on his style of politics. We are all in on 
Polyev style of politics. We can talk more about that style. And as this person said to me, said, if we don't win a majority and we're in the political wilderness for 20 years, because we are all in with Pierre Polyev and the, and the, the style he is now bringing to our Canadian political discourse. Yeah, it, it's a big bet. It could pay off in a big way for sure. But, yep. you know, there, there are also ways it could backfire. Uh, certainly the, the speech we heard. I mean, you know, there's the style and there's the themes. We heard the themes last night. Maybe the style was toned down a bit. What, what do we expect going forward on, on both points? Yeah, Polyev. Remember, Polyev, would, people thought he should have run back uh, a couple of years ago against O'Toole. And he didn't. His, he was just starting a young family. He's got a couple of young kids. Um, but he picked this time, and he seems to be the man of the moment. He seemed definitely to harness a lot of the anger and frustration that many Canadians felt when their lives were disrupted by the pandemic. And that took the form during his campaign of, you know, uh, well, before the campaign started, he was the, the leadership candidate most closely associated with the Freedom Convoy. And his campaign leaders, we had his campaign manager and senior advisor, Jenny Byrne, talking to our colleague Mercedes Stevenson last night. And Mercedes brought this up saying, you know, some of these convoy folks are facing criminal charges and your guy was, was down with them. And what do you say about that? And, and the campaign's point and Paul Yev's point and Jenny Burns' point is that they may not have endorsed the specific tactics of the convoy, but they believe that many Canadians at the very least understood the frustrations that gave birth to the freedom convoy, they, that, that people couldn't travel, people couldn't work. And so it's not a bug. It's going to be a bug in the eyes of some voters, but it's a feature. Uh, being associated with uh, the convoy. And certainly last night, uh, you know, that's one of the things we heard right away from the Liberals. They're going to use that association Polyev had with the convoy to say, this guy's a rogue. He just wants to tear things down. Uh, of course, you remember Polyev has said he wants to fire the governor of the Bank of Canada, right. wants to defund the CDC, doesn't believe in the scientists who recommend public health restrictions, universities who insist on mass mandates, they're for the birds. Um, all these things are polarizing in the sense that people have strong feelings one way or the other. And so, you know, the big bet you mentioned, yeah, the party has made a big bet that Poilievre's view on these is the mainstream Canadian view. We'll see. I think there's a, a, you know, political pundits say there's, you know, suburban moms may not be so convoy happy. They're an important voter bloc. It's going to be interesting to see now how Polyev takes his message beyond a partisan base, which was clearly excited about him, and tries now to appeal to what we call persuadable voters who are, you know, the, the ones you need to win an election. Right. Now, the thinking typically has been that, that you know, conservative leaders pivot, uh, but, you know, too much of not a pivot, maybe like uh, Aaron O'Toole can, can hurt you. But as you say, maybe not this guy. No. And Aaron O'Toole's pivot, I, I don't know, you could argue it wasn't so much the pivot. It's that he didn't seem to be true to himself, either during the leadership race or as leader. Personally, having watched O'Toole around Parliament Hill, I think he was more true to himself as the leader, and he had turned himself into some sort of cartoon, if you will, during the leadership, and people voted for that. Polyev is not going to pivot because what you see is what you get. He has been the politician that he was on the campaign trail, was a politician we have seen here in Ottawa, anybody who's watched him since he was elected at the age of, what, 22 or something like that. He's 43 years old right now. He's the youngest leader. He's younger than Jagmeet Singh. He's younger than... Uh, Justin Trudeau. Um, what you see is what you get. There's not going to be a pivot. Um, there is going to be, um, as as the campaign did do this, I think, better than the government's been doing this, an intense and laser-like focus on pocketbook issues. There's just no doubt about it. When you look at any polls that say 
you know, what should government be most concerned about? Cost of living, inflation. That is, that is just top the list everywhere. And it's a very difficult problem to solve. You just can't, it's, it's the one problem you cannot throw money at because that causes the problem, of course. And politicians are very much tempted to do that, to say, oh, people are struggling with inflation, we'll give them more money, which is inflationary. So what will Polyev do about that? So far, all he says he will do is fire the Bank of Canada governor as essentially punishment for getting us here. But that doesn't actually help the problem of inflation. It might make people feel good. And, you know, to be honest, if you a G7 country that fired its central bank governor would probably do more harm to its own economy than anything else. So what will Polyev do about that? Um, we don't know yet. He's going to have now have to now that he's got people angry and you know, it's and they were chanting freedom, freedom, freedom in the conference center last night after he won. That's great, but it's for those persuadable voters who believe that Canada is in fact a free country and does have a free press and our elections are fair and transparent and whatever, and of course they all are. Um, what's what do you do for sort of act two to get those persuadable voters who are not conservatives but are ready to look at a conservative leader who may have a reasonable plan? And again, I mentioned Stephen Harper at the beginning because that seemed to me still is the template for victory for the Conservative Party in Canada is to be conservative, no question about that, but to be able to appeal to people um, who live in suburban Toronto, suburban Calgary, live in the regions in uh, in Quebec. Those are also very important. Well, and let me just ask you this, David. I mean, much like Stephen Harper did with previous liberal leaders, uh, you know, the, the liberals aren't going to give Pierre Polyev any kind of a, a honeymoon period here. But what's your sense of how, how concerned they are by this new threat and, and how they're going to respond? So liberals, uh, there have been a lot of liberals who've been saying for months, guys, wake up, watch this Polyev juggernaut. I mean, we just, when you saw the crowd sizes that Polyev was getting, not just in, you know, the, quote, conservative heartland in Calgary or Edmonton. I mean, he was drawing in a thousand supporters in Peterborough, Ontario, and, you know, in Windsor, Ontario, NDP ter- territory. So there are liberals that I talk to that go, you know, hello, fellas, Team Red, we need to have a plan here. Um, so we'll see. Um, the, the thing right now they will do is, is try to paint him as a convoy reactionary. I'm not sure if they get along that far. Probably the best thing the government can do is do something about inflation, do something about the issues that have propelled Polyev to this point. And again, there's, it's not an easy fix. And to do that also means probably the government has at the very, uh, the government can't control its own destiny in terms of an election. So if the Trudeau liberals probably want to do something about inflation costs of living, they'll need some runway. They'll need some time. There's not going to be a fall election. The Trudeau liberals have struck that deal with Jagmeet Singh's NDP to give themselves some political stability here in Ottawa until uh, 2024. Um, and if, if that deal holds, and so far it looks like it is holding, that again gives the Trudeau liberals some time to, to do things. But it also gives Polyev time to do some important work he's got to do fixing some what I'll call plumbing at Conservative Party headquarters. The Conservative Party's computer system that manages its voter contact and get out the vote database, it is three elections old. And I talked to so many campaign managers for Conservatives, it is letting them down. And the liberal version of their computer system, is it's it's the top of class. And it is a huge advantage in an election campaign for the, for the liberals because we see them, their vote, it, the liberal vote now is so much more efficient. They win the close races. Yeah. Conservatives, particularly in BC, losing close races, that, believe it or not, is their software. So they need to overhaul fundraising software, campaign software. Polyev knows that. It's going to take millions of dollars. The conservatives have millions to do that, and it could take 12 to 18 months. 
That, believe it or not, I think, is going to be his first priority, not some flashy thing in the House of Commons. He's going to, he's, he knows that the plumbing in his party needs to be fixed. He's got a new leader, shiny new coat of paint, and not out of the stuff that really makes things work. For any conservative leader, uh, there was a lot of fertile ground right now, given public dissatisfaction with the liberals, uh, the policy files that uh, varying policy files that really seem to be a mess at the moment. The big picture issue, pocketbook issues, you know, the economy, inflation, jobs, travel, passports, as Pierre Pauly have alluded to, foreign policy, running down the list. It, it does feel like a government that's been spinning its tires through the summer, a government that kind of felt like it had almost checked out. So, yes, there is dissatisfaction. And, yes, it's an opportunity here uh, for the conservatives to articulate that, to speak to Canadians, to address those concerns. Pierre Polyev, though, obviously represents a, a different kind of approach from a conservative leader. Differs, maybe not necessarily in significant policy ways from his two predecessors or even his three predecessors, but does bring a different style, a different tone. And one that seems designed for the moment. He's obviously tapped into something. And it wasn't just the big victory. It was the massive crowds right across the country that suggest, you know, there's something here. There's something here that the liberals should pay close attention to or at least ignore at their peril. So joining us to talk about what this victory represents for the Conservative Party, for conservatism, for politics in this country. Very pleased to welcome to the program Brian Lilly, political columnist with the Toronto Sun, torontosun.com. Brian, first of all, I want to get your thoughts on just what a big victory it was. I know this this race at times felt like a coronation, but I don't know. Were you still surprised by the, the numbers we saw last night? Surprised that it got to 68% and just a little bit over? Absolutely, yeah. Um, it was... Uh, bigger than even his campaign had been predicting, actually. So, you know, a major victory for him. Um, if you remember a few weeks ago, the uh, Charest campaign had said, well, we have a path for victory, and here it is, and they released it. Um, it was leaked out to folks in the media, like me. And I, I looked at it, and for Charest to win, he had to win 75% of the points in Quebec, 50% in Ontario. Um, in the end, uh, probably have won 330 ridings, only losing two in Ontario, yeah. including Ottawa Centre, and he lost six ridings in Quebec. So obviously, the path to uh, victory for Jean Charest, who was the you know, second close, 16%, uh, was much narrower than he thought. Well, it's the thing. I mean, this wasn't some strategy, you know, that, that Pierre Pauly had managed to weave together victory here. I mean, you know, this was just an outright win, one, uh, you know, in all parts of the country, one with uh, all factions within the party. You know, so, you know, for all intents and purposes, I mean, you know, th this is his party. That's that's quite a mandate. Yeah. Look, when Andrew Scheer won as the second leader of the modern conservative party after Stephen Harper, he won on the 13th ballot, I believe. And it was a very narrow victory over Maxime Bernier. Bernier had been ahead all the way through, and Scheer just went through and picked up second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, you know, ballot support from all the people that were dropping off, and he increased more than um, more than uh, Bernier did when O'Toole won. He, you know, Peter McKay was out in front at one point, and. Uh, yeah, O'Toole won by cobbling together, again, second ballot support from Leslie Lewis, from uh, convincing people he was the, the true blue conservative. There was a lot of strategy. This was, the strategy was uh, win at all costs and, and beat them handily. 
And he did. It's interesting. It seems like, you know, the politician seemed to match the moment. I think if Pierre Polyev had ran in the last leadership race or even the one before that, he might have been much the same kind of candidate, maybe would have would have done well. But it just felt like this was his moment and the enthusiasm we saw, the crowds he was drawing across the country. Not something we often see in Canadian politics. What do you attribute that to? What's going on here? I, I think that uh, that there, you know, as you said, we've got a government that doesn't work. We've got a government that can't run the passport office. There's still long lines. I ran into a, a, a Toronto liberal the other day who was complaining to me about the fact that this government can't work, that they had been going by a, uh, a Service Canada office on College Street and that it, the lineup was just huge going down the street. That's for basic services. Um, we've got the airport problem. You know, CNN did a uh, analyze the data for the entire summer. It's not just Pearson, because Pearson was the worst airport in the world for delays over the entirety of the summer, ending at Labor Day. Montreal was second. Vancouver was 10th. We get three in the top 10 globally. And the government wants to claim it, you know, their service or their policies have nothing to do with this. We know that's not the case. Immigration. Right now, we have a shortage of skilled tradespeople. It is If you're a plumber that wants to immigrate to Canada, it is a four-year processing time for your application. If you've got opportunities, and right now the U.S. has a shortage of skilled traits as well, if you can get into the U.S., you're going to the U.S. Because we will take four years just to put your application through. The government can't run basic services. There is a frustration that is a result of the pandemic. Um, we do have a prime minister who went from sunny ways to demagoguery very quickly and has only gotten worse. And so, yeah, there, there's a, a frustration, not with everybody, obviously. Trudeau has his core base of support, but with an awful lot of Canadians, yeah, they're frustrated. But it does feel like Pierre has has tapped into that better than maybe his predecessor did, uh, you know, in, in terms of understanding, I guess, the concerns of everyday Canadians or or at least, you know, positioning himself as somebody who, who can do something about it. So, like I said, I, I, in the introduction, I think there's fertile ground for regardless of who the conservative leader is at the moment. But, uh, you know, there is something unique about the enthusiasm amongst conservatives, certainly for Pierre Paglia. Yeah. Now, I, I, I would caution we've got to wait and see how things go, because the latest opinion polls, be it from Abacus or Leger or any of the, mm-hmm. the major firms, show that, mm, the Conservatives and the Liberals are both kind of tied, and they're both in that same area that we've seen them in over the last two elections, both in the low 30s. And, you know, one poll, it'll be the Conservatives are up by one or two. The next poll is the Liberals that are up by one or two. Nobody's really um, taking off. So we'll see what happens when, uh, you know, once Polyev introduces himself, or he better hope this doesn't happen, the Liberals introduce him to Canadians. Yeah. Um, to see if they, you know, does he start to put some distance? Is there a, a growth? Right now, this is both an asset, a liability for Pierre Polyev, is that um, when Ipsos went out there, and I was talking with Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos, about this, uh, they said, you have a favorable or unfavorable view of Pierre Polyev. And right now we know that the, the PM's unfavorables are at the highest or close to the highest they've been his entire time in public life. Polly have only had, among conservatives, 57% said, we have a favorable view of this guy. We like this guy. 
um, amongst the general public, which includes con- you know people who say they will vote conservative and everyone else, that shrinks to just 23% have a favorable view, 35% unfavorable, but 42% say they don't know enough about them to make a judgment call. So that's both an asset and a liability. If he defines himself first, and Canadians get to see the man who was on the stage last night, who was gracious, who was warm, uh, showing humanity, both to his opposition, but talking about his family. We're a complicated, messy bunch, he said. Um, If he gets to do that and and show warmth while talking about the economic and and basic issues that Canadians care about, then I, I think you will start to see that that gap between the Conservatives and the Liberals, and he'll go up in support. Well, on the other hand, if the Liberals get out there and, and paint them as the devil incarnate, which is likely their plan, then he's going to face a real uphill battle. Oh, sure, yeah. I think it's going to be a lot of elbows up politics between now and in the next election, whenever that is. But yeah, as to the question of where the Conservatives can grow here, and maybe the old conventional wisdom was, okay, you win the, the leadership, you sort of pivot to the middle, and you try to fight for those centrist voters, fight with the Liberals for those. It, it seems to me like Pierre Polyev doesn't necessarily buy into that. Maybe there's something to be said for reaching out to people who maybe typically don't vote, people who feel as though you know there's no point in voting, that they've been apathetic about voting. They feel like they haven't been represented by you know, politics as usual in this country. Is, is that his strategy or where, where do you see the, the potential here for the party to grow? Well, if he's smart, yeah, he keeps reaching out to people who have been disinterested or disaffected, not involved in politics. Um, there's tremendous room for growth there because on a good year, only about, what, 60 percent of us vote in a federal election. Um, but he also does have to remember that among those 60%, there were a bunch of people who voted for the Conservatives in 06, in 08, and especially in 2011 when they got their majority under Stephen Harper, who switched over to Justin Trudeau and the Liberals for the last couple of elections, or at least in 2015. And he's got to win those back. Now, look, I, there's two things that I've disagreed with the Conservatives over the last bunch of election cycles. One, fixation on Quebec. You know, they're going to win about 10 seats in Quebec. Don't believe the hype when you start hearing whispers that they're going to win 20, 25 seats in Quebec. It's not going to happen. So, you know, appeal to Quebec voters by just saying, we'll leave you alone. You know, we're not going to get involved in provincial jurisdiction. And by the way, that applies to Alberta. That applies to Manitoba. That applies to Ontario. Worked well with Stephen Harper. Um, But the other thing is that to win over suburban voters in the Toronto area or the lower mainland, that you have to become liberal light. I don't agree with that. What you do have to do is speak to them about the issues that matter in a way that shows that you understand their frustrations and you've got a solution. I don't think that Aaron O'Toole and and um, Andrew Shear before him were able to do that, and thus they didn't increase in the 905. You don't have to become a liberal to win in the 905. I, I wouldn't say Doug Ford's uh, a liberal. Um, his opponents portrayed him as um, the devil incarnate, and he won half of the seats inside Toronto. Um, they don't even have to win inside Toronto. They just have to be able to take the suburbs, the, you know, which is the biggest population center in the country. They have to be able to take some of those seats or they don't win. But, you know, talk to, you're talking new immigrant families, talk to them about getting ahead, which Pierre's doing, getting ahead. You know, being able to follow your dream. Why did you come here? Are you able to work in your profession? Are your kids getting uh, 
you know, the opportunity that you moved here for. Those things will resonate. Let me just ask, Brian, what, what you're hearing or, or what you think is, you know, the likely scenario in terms of Justin Trudeau sticking around in terms of the next election. I mean, you know, the rumors and speculation run the gamut, right, from a fall election, election in 2025, Justin Trudeau resigning, Christia Freeland going off to NATO, somebody else leading the party. What's your sense? Uh, I, I, I've heard consistent rumors that Christia Freeland actually doesn't want the, the job anymore. Uh, I don't think she's going to leave for the NATO gig. I think that ship has sailed. Uh, but she could be looking for a private sector exit. Um, you know, there are others that have leadership ambitions. So Melanie Jolie, Francois-Philippe Champagne, or Frankie Bubbles, as I call them, uh, Anita Anand, there, there are others. Um, but my, my sense has always been that Trudeau relishes the idea of going up against Pierre Polyev. And so I think that victory last night means that he's going to stick around, that he's going to, you know, battle it out, whether it is this fall, uh, which is always a possibility. It's a minority government. You know, yeah, they got an agreement that's not written in stone. Uh, And even if it was, he'd smash the tablets off of uh, (laughs) the side of the mountain if he had to. So, yeah, it could be this fall. It, it could go three years, but I think that uh, this is a fight that Trudeau wants. I, I think it's a fight both he and Polyev relish the idea of going at each other. Uh, but as I wrote in a column that just went live at the, the TorontoSun.com, uh, we all know that Polyev can be an effective thorn in, in Trudeau's side in, in the House of Commons. We know he can ask the zingers and, and really get under Trudeau's skin. And that's great. But that gets you the job of leader of His Majesty's loyal opposition. That's the job he has now. By the way, last time a guy had that was 70 years ago, and it was the MP for Carleton. Pierce Riding. No, no kidding. Yeah, conservative wow. MP from Carleton was the last person to be called that in the House of Commons. Um, but if he wants to become prime minister, he's got to show that warm guy that was there last night. That's the Pierre Polyev that I've known for the last 18 years. Um, I, I covered him from his very first campaign in 04. Uh, he was effectively my local MP because I lived on the border of his riding, but you know everything I was doing was in his. So I've known him, I've seen him, I've covered him. That's the guy that has to show up and, and, and campaign to Canadians and say, you know, that guy says I got your back. I'll have them. And here's what I'm going to do. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
You know, seven months ago, as Russian forces had amassed around Ukraine, it became clear that we were headed toward a Russian invasion. Uh, there were Putin apologists and supporters that had really bought into the hype around the war- Russian war machine. You know, the idea that Kiev would fall within days. One example here, not to name any names, February 23rd. Many people are predicting that a Russian invasion of Ukraine will look like the failed Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. They're wrong. The world will be shocked by the swiftness of Russian victory. We're about to witness a Sputnik moment. Uh, That did not age well, as the kids say. And it is indeed looking more like the failed Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, if anything, on a much more sped up timeline. So this invasion pretty early on was clear that this was shaping up to be an embarrassment, maybe even a disaster for Vladimir Putin. What was he thinking in the first place? Obviously, this has been a trying six months for Ukraine today. In fact, the 200th day of this war. But Ukraine has mounted a brilliant resistance. And we've really seen that over the last 48 hours as Ukrainian troops have been preparing for building up for a counteroffensive. And just to put it in context in terms of how remarkable this has been over the last few days as the world has been focused on the death of the queen and other issues. Something amazing has been happening in Ukraine. Thursday evening. Ukraine's president announced that Ukrainian troops had uh, seized back 1,000 square kilometers of territory from Russian troops. That has now grown to 3,000 square kilometers. This counteroffensive has been rapid. It has been effective. As of yesterday, we saw Ukrainian troops entering two vital supply towns that have been held by Russian troops, Izium and Kupanics. Now, We've heard that there is still fighting uh, around those communities, uh, Kupiansk uh, and, and Izium. Uh, but the fact that uh, Ukrainian troops have entered, retaken those communities is strategically is huge. Just the overall momentum of this Ukrainian counteroffensive is strategically huge. The, the sight of Russian troops fleeing, retreating. That could have a considerable impact, certainly when it comes to morale and public opinion and Conversely, as well, tying into that in a support for Vladimir Putin in Russia. Now, this obviously wouldn't be able to happen without the tremendous support uh, from the West, Americans in particular. You know, obviously, I think Canada maybe hasn't done as much as we could have, although we certainly have provided support to Ukraine to give them the tools they need to take the fight to the Russians. And taking the fight to the Russians is what they're doing. Uh, independent journalist Adam Zivo spent the last several months in Ukraine. He joins us on the line to talk about what's unfolded over the last few days and just how significant this is. Adam, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, great to join you. Thanks for having me. I mean, we spoke a little while ago and you were in uh, Kharkiv and uh, we talked about the situation there. This counteroffensive uh, certainly seems concentrated in that area. Help us understand what's what's going on there. Well, essentially what's happening right now is in this phenomenal breakthrough in eastern Ukraine, which was achieved through a disinformation campaign which drew Russian forces to the south. Uh, Essentially, what had happened is that there's a city called Kherson in southern Ukraine, which uh, Ukrainians have been very uh, eager to reclaim, to recapture. And so the Ukrainians said for several weeks that they were going to launch a major offensive uh, to recapture Kherson. And in response, the Russians sent all of their best military to that area to defend against this attack, which never happened. And that caused the Russians to thin out their lines uh, in eastern Ukraine, just southeast of Kharkiv. 
And that's where the Ukrainians had actually gathered all of their best weapons and best personnel, allowing them to puncture through the lines and retake massive amounts of territory. Right. But I mean, you know, it's it's been uh, considerable, maybe even uh, beyond, you know, some of the most uh, optimistic assessments of how this would go. You know, we got those early accounts that Ukrainian troops were making progress. Things seem to be going well. And it just feels like it's it's been a snowball effect of the last 48 hours. Uh, it, it has been. I mean, as, as of now, uh, if you go on Twitter, you know, there's a network of accounts that follow all this and share a whole bunch of unofficial information. And you can see Russian forces seemingly fleeing for their lives and leaving large amounts of military material, uh, you know, just tanks after tanks, which have just been abandoned as the Russians try to get over a river to safety. In terms of the uh, re- resiliency, the spirit of Ukrainians uh, who have you know been dealing with uh, now more than six months of hell, but still you know remaining optimistic, re- re- remaining resolute, and uh, believing that they can prevail here, how much do we attribute to the success of this and hopefully continued success to that that spirit, to that resolve? I, I mean, obviously the resilience is part of it, but I think what's also important is. Way that Ukrainians are waging war. I mean, even myself, an international journalist and observer, I was bamboozled by the strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, about a week or two ago, it was announced that journalists would be uh, not allowed to be in sensitive areas in Kherson and Kharkiv. Uh, and the whole reason for that is that there were too many leaks in the area. Uh, and, and now, you know, in retrospect, it seems to have been part of this larger feint. Uh, so on my end, I always thought that. Uh, re- keeping journalists out of both areas, you know, I thought that Kharkiv was the, the sort of secondary concern, and they mostly wanted to keep journalists out of the Kherson area, but it turns out they actually want to keep journalists out of Kharkiv and use Kherson as a distraction. In terms of, you know, the the, um, the Russian strategy, and, you know, it's it's been obviously this whole situation, you know, more or less a disaster for, for Russia, but now, in light of this, I mean, theoretically, it's possible Russia could push back, maybe retake some of these, these uh, you know, these towns that uh, Ukrainian forces have seized back, but it feels like things are, are almost starting to fall apart here for the Russians. I mean, wh- what's your sense of, of where this is at, big picture? Uh, I mean, it's hard to tell, right? I mean, it's, it's very early. And it's very difficult to get a sense of what Russians think about this. Uh, but from what I've seen so far, there seems to be reports of Russian media and Russian telegram channels uh, complaining about these massive losses, praying for their soldiers, uh, many of them pressing anger towards their leadership. And so if the Russians feel angry and dismayed, then that means that this has broken through that web of propaganda that usually insulates them. And that means it's a big deal. Yeah, that would be huge, obviously. Um, I mean, you know, certainly to begin to raise questions about, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin himself and, and his grip on power. And we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but it, it feels like we're at a, a tipping point here. And, you know, the, the Russian apologists who have gone quiet, the Russian apologists who said that, you know, that, that the Russian victory was inevitable here and, and and all of that kind of speculation. I mean, you know, we're, we're seeing a very different story unfold here in Ukraine, uh, it certainly reinforces the idea, doesn't it, Adam, that this, you know, victory for Ukraine is is not just possible, but maybe even we're getting to the point where it's it's a likelihood that this doesn't have to be uh, we, we settle. This doesn't have to be, you know, we force Ukraine to accept some terms that's, you know, th- there's there's something here. Well, the thing is that the Ukrainians would never accept any compromise here because for them, as they've often said to me, you know, these areas aren't just lines on a map. 
Yeah. So if you tell them that they need to concede a land to the Russians, what that means is that people, you know, have to live with knowing that their families are under occupation, uh, where they live in really harsh circumstances and have their culture annihilated. You know, I have close friends whose families are from Izum, which is currently being liberated as we speak. Um, so for them, the only choice is absolute victory and expelling Russia from their lands. And I always thought this was going to take much longer. You know, I thought mm -hmm. this was going to be a multi-year war, but it seems to everyone's surprise that this is concluding or is on the road to concluding, hopefully, sooner rather than later, uh, which has been great. I mean, the Ukrainians have been overperforming throughout the war. Uh, the Russians retreated all from the Kiev region. You know, Ukraine was supposed to fall in three days. That's what everyone thought. And now we see them pushing back uh, so quickly. It's it's quite inspiring. Right. And certainly vindicates, you know, the American approach and, and other countries to ensure that, you know, we were providing Ukraine with the arms they need to, to fight back. And it's a reminder that, look, that that support is is crucial, that, you know, if, if we're starting to get close to to something resembling a victory, that, that we can't take our foot off the gas. We can't back down now, can we? We, we can't. And, and the thing is that I think that in this way, Ukrainians have sometimes been a, vic a victim of their own success because people don't realize that this is, this is not just a regional war. Uh, this has implications for all of European and therefore global security, right? Uh, if Ukraine falls and that destabilizes Eastern Europe by create, making Poland feel uh, at risk, making the Baltic states feel at risk, uh, and so it's important for us to ensure that we keep on providing weapons because obviously Ukrainians are using them well and uh, that we just, you know, go with what we're doing right now for our own interest, not for the Ukrainians. All right. Some important days ahead. What are you going to be watching for, Adam? Uh, I'm actually going to be watching for what happens in, in Kherson because the big question here is that if the Russian lines have been punctured in the east and Russia needs to reinforce these areas, where are those troops coming from? And so... If they have to move troops away from Hassan to reinforce the east, does that thin their line sufficiently in Hassan to allow the Ukrainians to make another breakthrough in the south? The big question here is where's the line thin? Canada and its plasma supply, and how best to increase our domestic supply of blood plasma. Now, this is separate from blood donation. Plasma is used to make some uh, life-saving products. So if, if we don't have enough, we've got a big problem on our hands. As it stands now, Canadian Blood Services collects only about 15% of Canada's plasma supply. The rest comes from the United States. And in the United States, it is allowed, it is commonplace, that plasma donors be compensated. Now, there are a lot of, uh, I suppose, ethical issues that arise when it comes to the idea of compensating plasma donors. But let's be realistic about this status quo in Canada. We are obtaining most of our plasma from individuals who have been compensated for that donation. But the idea that we might be moving in that direction has prompted a lot of outrage. Now, Canadian Blood Services has completed an agreement with a private company to collect blood plasma from donors in Canada. And yes, the head of the agency says it will open the door to paid plasma collection in this country. But the goal here is to increase our domestic supply. Joining us to talk about why it's so important that we increase our domestic uh, supply 
We're pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Angela Deanna joins us, Executive Director with Alpha One Canada. Angela, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for having me today and bringing attention to this very important issue. Right, it is. And I think Canadians are maybe more familiar with the blood donation side, and, and that is and will remain voluntary. But of course, when it comes to, to plasma, we import so much from the United States, probably much more than Canadians realize. Let's talk about what's what's done with that plasma, the important pharmaceutical products, life-saving uh, therapeutics that, that are derived from that. Sure. And, and thank you for noting off the top that the actual collection of plasma is entirely unlike that of whole blood collection. I don't think um, a lot of Canadians, and, and I know in working with patients and their families, that even they don't realize the difference. So maybe we can talk a little first about um, a plasma collection <laughs> right now, as it stands, can take one or two hours at a Canadian Blood Services donor clinic um, and that plasma is then collected and shipped out of Canada to be manufactured into life-saving therapies for diseases like alpha-1, but also um, other diseases your listeners might be more familiar with, like hemophilia, primary immune deficiencies, and sickle cell disease. Um, these patients rely on these therapies to live. Right. So what is the vulnerability then when it comes to Canada having such a heavy reliance on the United States? Obviously, you know, the, the importation of that product is enough to meet the needs, but you know, we're obviously subject to, to what's going on, you know, in other countries then. Absolutely. And that has been the issue uh, for many years and why the network of rare blood disorder organizations and our video, which Alpha One Canada is a part of, has been encouraging the leadership of Canadian Blood Services to form a public-private partnership for the collection of plasma for many, many years. Um, we lack, well, you had mentioned it off the top, 15% is nowhere near self-sufficiency. And right. we know that countries that produce enough plasma to be considered self-sufficient are those countries that financially compensate donors. So you mentioned the United States, also Germany, uh, Austria, mm -hmm. Czech Republic, um, they all compensate donors and they're able to meet patient need. We are not in a position to do that here today in Canada. Do you find it hypocritical then for those who are opposed to the steps the Canadian Blood Services is now taking to, to be comfortable with the status quo? I mean, why, why is it okay for private companies <laughs> right. in the U.S. to do this or for American donors to be compensated, sure. but it's some, some kind of line in the sand when it comes to that happening here? Well, I think what's being missed here, Rob, is, is we have been purchasing our medications here in Canada from the U.S. from compensated donors. We are already doing that. We have yeah. been purchasing finished medications here in Canada for over two decades. So nothing has actually changed there. What this announcement this week um, does is it ensures plasma donated in Canada is used to make medications in Canada exclusively for patients in Canada. And those controls prevent domestically collected plasma from being sold and shipped offshore. So this is a win-win for, for Canada. Um, I, I want to highlight that in, in 2008, when Czech Republic did this, um, 
they legalized uh, compensated donations. And in less than three years, their donations increased 700%. Wow. Yes. (laughs) So you can um, imagine how excited patients, Canadians are um, this week, knowing that our country is now committed to moving in a direction to become self-sufficient. Well, and, and there's some pretty optimistic forecasts for where we're going to be in a few years under this arrangement. As mentioned, we're, we're at 15 percent in terms of, uh, you know, our domestic supply. But, you know, realistically, could we get maybe even to 50 percent? That is the ultimate goal. Um, you still, if, when it comes to plasma-derived uh, therapies, they still want to diversify and diversify risk, right? You know, I, I think right. we all know of examples during the pandemic where there were supply chain interruptions and shortages. So we always want to make sure we have relationships where if there was a shortage or disruption um, with any of the manufacturers, that therapies could then be um, purchased from other companies <laughs> in other countries so we can meet the needs here. But 50% is the ultimate goal. Ideally, it could be a little higher, but really 50% is fantastic considering we're only at 15 right now. As we've noted, you know, Canadian Blood Services is taking some criticism for this move and, and those who, who are opposed to, to these steps, those who, who worry that somehow this could affect, uh, you know, the, the collection of blood from voluntary donors in Canada. I mean, what, what, what do you say to those criticisms? Well, there's no evidence of that happening in any of the jurisdictions where they move to um, a compensated model. So that actually, has, there's no evidence at all. It did not affect cold blood uh, donation. And, and circling back to what we um, started off chatting about around cold blood collection, um, that's 10, 15 minutes. And a lot of people can do that. Um, we all know, we've seen the blood drives at universities and the mobile clinics. You can't do that with plasma. Uh, It's a much more complicated uh, donation. It requires a special machine, a plasmapheresis machine, which has to be done in a clinic. And like I said, can take one to two hours. So we do not foresee whole blood collection um, being an issue. (laughs) There is still an issue now. We're always looking for whole blood collection, but we don't mm-hmm. see it being affected in a negative way by rolling out a compensated uh, plasma donation centers across Canada. Right. And, and look, and, and Canadian Blood Services is well aware, uh, you know, Dr. Sharon in particular, uh, their head of some of the uh, politics, the emotion around this. But, you know, the mm-hmm. fact that Canadian Blood Services is trying to be pragmatic, that they've got a goal and it's it's an important goal, I think, is as most people would concede to increase domestic supply. What does that say about uh, the leadership of Canadian Blood Services? What, what have you made of how they've handled this whole situation? Well, to be completely transparent. In recent years, there have been multiple stakeholder consultations with patient groups and mm-hmm. with uh, province, provincial and territorial governments and with the groups that were opposed to this, so the Canadian Health Coalition and Blood Watch. We have all been included in a dialogue in recent years, knowing that status quo was not going to meet the need. We know what works, so how can we do that here in Canada? And kudos to the leadership at Canadian Blood Services because they've managed to create a partnership that is very specific to meeting Canadian needs and keeping that plasma in Canada to make medications for Canadians. So it's, it's a really 
it's, we've been waiting for this for years. (laughs) We tend to get a little emotional about it because these are patients who rely on these therapies to live. I don't think, you know, unless you know someone with a rare blood disorder, um, for hemophilia patients, it's 900 plasma donations to treat one patient for one year. Um, I mean, it's similar to with, with alpha one. So how else are we going to increase our donations? So we commend Canadian blood services, um, for moving forward with this partnership. Um, and we're very excited that in the coming years, we'll be moving from that 15% to ideally, like you said, that 15% target. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.